it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 171. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to answer a great listener question. It's a little bit involved, and it discusses something that we've actually been wanting to talk a little bit about. So I'm going to go ahead and read the question. Uh, so we have, good morning, Andrew. Thanks for the awesome podcast. I am new to investing and wanted your opinion on price to book. A lot of my peers think of price to book as a ratio that should only be used by banks. They think to evaluate companies such as Microsoft using price to book is not appropriate. Can you explain? Thanks, John. Andrew, what are your thoughts on this? It's a great question, and I have a lot of thoughts, so we're going to spend a lot of time on this today. Um, like Dave said, it is a little technical, and so if you're an absolute beginner, I would recommend go to episode 42 and start on the Back to the Basics series, or you can go back to episode 21, where we talk about the Benjamin Graham formula that mentions the price-to-book ratio a little bit, um, or you could read... Um, the seven steps ebook and that intros it pretty well too. But price to book is very controversial and it's near and dear to my heart because, you know, I'm a value investor at heart. When you hear us say invest with a margin of safety, that's a concept that goes all the way back to Benjamin Graham, who was Warren Buffett's mentor. And he was somebody who invented value investing in a sense. 
And so being somebody who's a value investor, I'm constantly trying to reduce risk by buying companies that are trading lower than their intrinsic value, lower than what they're really worth. And so as a value investor, price to book is something that is usually associated with value investing. And it's something that as time has gone on, my opinions on price to book have changed. So, you know, in a nutshell, price to book is talking about the relationship between a company's book value and the price it is in the market. So, you know, price to earnings is PE, price to book PB, and book value is a company's assets minus their liabilities. The, the idea of buying companies with a low price to book was popularized. I think it really started to to get popular when Benjamin Graham wrote The Intelligent Investor and that was his second book and so you know he he had a couple formulas in the book that he shared one of them was the Benjamin Graham formula and that involved I think that one involved price to earnings right yes yes and then he also had like a a couple formulas that he recommended and so he recommended a low price to book as part of a defensive portfolio. And so I think a lot of people kind of took, they take parts of his ideas and, and kind of preach it as gospel. And so, you know, if we look at the reality of how price to book has done, it's, it, it the, the metric has changed and it's because the business world has changed. So when Benjamin Graham first started out and he wrote security analysis, this was his first book. It's a huge book, seven, eight hundred pages, and it's it's more like a textbook to looking at stocks and evaluating them. And if you look in his book, he had two big examples of companies, type types of companies he was evaluating. So he looked at utilities companies and railroads companies. So back in his day, those were two of the more popular industries and, and stocks that a lot of investors looked at. And so if you contrast that to the type of businesses we have today, you have Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix. These are businesses that are a lot more, you know, obviously they have a lot more advanced tech technology that will always be the case as time goes on, but their strengths come from something that's a lot less tangible. So for Netflix, it's not it's not even the servers that that contain the content. What makes Netflix valuable is the fact that people will click on their app on their app and they have that access to those people. With um, Facebook, it's the fact that everybody has a Facebook account. With Google, it's the fact that people know to go on Google. It's not the fact that Google has nice office buildings. Or that they have, you know, factories or anything like that. So if you contrast those businesses today and you and you look at businesses from Benjamin Graham's time, you know, to build a railroad and to, and to be a successful railroad company, you had to lay down a lot of track. That was just that was the rule of the game. You know, you weren't going to grow that much unless you had these profitable railroad tracks that, that went through various cities and similar with utilities, you know, if you wanted to create more profits, you needed to build more electric plants and things of that nature. So you have, you know, you have similarities, obviously, but you have 
vast differences in the value, how value is created. And it's not just the tech companies we see today. It's also brands. Something like a brand like a Nike is, is so valuable. It's not the, the shoes that they make or, or the, the manufacturer contracts that they have that makes the Nike business so profitable. It's the fact that people want to buy Nikes. And that, so that's something that doesn't show up in the balance sheet. It doesn't show up as an asset. And so it doesn't show up in book value. And so price to book doesn't include it. And that's a big reason why, especially as the economy turns more and more towards intangibles and away from these big expensive pieces of equipment and machinery that are needed. When you look, you know, from a broad standpoint, you just have two different economies. And so the price to book has become less and less useful. And there are several reasons for that. And obviously, I think this is a big one that that needs to be looked at first. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I think things have changed so much since his seminal books came out. And the analysis of companies has changed drastically as the I guess the, the notion of how the businesses function and what's involved in actually operating the businesses have changed so much. And all the examples that you gave were fantastic examples of how much industry has changed. Just the, the intangible nature of it and just the, the function of, of the assets themselves have morphed so much from the top companies that Ben Graham would have been looking at during his time compared to what we're looking at now. The question that that uh, was asked about Microsoft, if you compare Microsoft to Standard Oil, uh, it's night and day. And the, you wouldn't use a price to book to compare the success or failure of Microsoft, whereas it would be something that you would use to evaluate the the success of of a standard oil back in the day and i just think that having this discussion now is is a valid discussion because i think it it goes to how value investors look at value in companies and just the me- different metrics that are involved in trying to assess the strength or weakness of a company because there are so many things that have changed in Tangible versus intangible is very much a, a big part of, of a lot of what's going on right now. And whether you think things are horribly overpriced or not, or are horribly underpriced, uh, it really comes down to how you value the company and where you think things are going to go. And even when you look at a company now, say, for example, somebody like a Walmart, for example, they have quite a bit of inventory. They have a lot of stores and everything. But even with them, you wouldn't necessarily use something like a price to book to to value the company because there's a lot more intangible involved in Walmart than there is in a bank now. And I think that probably would be a nice place for us to segue into some other things you wanted to talk about. Yeah, and really... The, the emphasis on that is, you know, how are you valuing it? And so with Benjamin Graham, I think something that it really stuck out to me when I saw this, it was just, you know, hidden and implanted in his book. 
But the way Benjamin Graham originally defined intrinsic value, if you look in security analysis, he mentioned it's the the value, the way you value a company is based on how you expect their future earnings power. That was it. He didn't have, you know, I don't think he mentioned price to book until his second book, The Intelligent Investor. And The Intelligent Investor was the one that became, you know, a number one smashing hit and the one that we review regularly. But that that was really his definition. And so how that looked for him back then and how that looks for investors like us today is really two different things. And so I think you you, you throw another wrench into it and I, I hope I, I I won't go too deep into this, but the other fact of the matter is that I really like what you said about how you know ty- like assets kind of have different types. So like one asset isn't the same as another asset. You know, the, an, an asset can be more valuable than another. Going back to the example, let's say you took a Microsoft versus a, an oil company. You know, if Microsoft can make, let's say they can make $40 on $100 of new assets, but the oil company can only make $6 on $100 of new assets. Well, Microsoft's assets are more valuable than the oil company's assets because they're going to have higher future earnings power. And so not only can you say that about different assets, you can also say it about like cash itself. So if we think about what's different, what's changed. To to give backstory, we have you have this 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 continuous struggle between value investing and growth investing. And so over a very long period of time, like 80 plus years, you've had periods of time where value stocks have done way better than growth stocks, and growth stocks have done way better than value stocks. And so, you know, believe it or not, value stocks have been underperforming since 2007. So that's 13 years that growth stocks have done better than value stocks. You can use that as an argument to say, well, you know, value's turn must be around the corner. And you could be right, but you also have to consider what's what's what else has happened since then. So if you think about interest rates and Consider the fact that since 2007, interest rates have been steadily declining. And if you think about the implications of what low interest rates means. So I'll give you an example of some things we've also seen recently. When the Fed dropped interest rates super low to to help against the pandemic, companies like Apple and Amazon were able to borrow billions of dollars for 1% interest, 2% interest. Ridiculously low interest rates on their debt and and they have access to to this huge amounts of capital. It's a huge it's a huge competitive advantage compared to other companies who can't finance like that and they have to try to compete against that. So what that tells you when you can borrow at such cheap rates, cash itself becomes less valuable because it's so easy to get. It's so easy to borrow. And so if you remember, cash is an asset. An asset goes in the balance sheet and it's part of book value. So now you have another thing that's getting thrown into the loop where as interest rates have gone lower, 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 assets, uh, cash has become less valuable. So those assets are not as valuable as maybe previous 
cash assets have been when price to book has done better. And low interest rates can can stay low for a very long time. You know, I, I always like to think and try to think of the opposite side. I like to, to take the contrarian approach. And I like to think, well, if 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 things are this way, it has to rebound eventually, right? But but when you look at interest rates, they they have historically stayed low for long periods of time. So the last time we had interest rates really low was during the Great Depression. And interest rates stayed low until the middle of the 1940s. And back in uh, Great Britain, when they were the, the dominant superpower and the British pound sterling was the world reserve currency, they had a, a couple of decades of low interest rates and they called it the great prosperity. It's something like the great prosperous time of easy money. And it was just a huge boom time for them. And then you, you had the Industrial Revolution shortly follow in, in the United States. And so a lot of prosperity can come from low interest rates. And so my point is, is that we have, we've had declining interest rates since 2007. Value is underperformed. And then now that we have the pandemic, not only have rates dropped to ridiculously low numbers, but the Fed has come out and said that they're not planning on raising them for a couple of years. And then you also need to consider the fact that over history, rates can stay long for a very long time just because they are low now doesn't mean they need to rise tomorrow or next year. And so I think as investors, we really need to consider that not only is the business world change in the sense that, yeah, tangibles, intangibles, technology, blah, 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 but you also have a very interesting economic shift that's fundamentally different that hasn't been seen since the Great Depression, which last I checked was 90 years ago. So a lot of old school ideas that weren't these old school ideas that weren't formulated during that time period might possibly not be applicable today because we might be seeing such a different environment than what we've seen in the past 80 years. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I guess, so what are your thoughts on comparing, I guess, different businesses now? I mean, how do you think Price to Book has any sort of function at all now? What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. That's, that's a good question. I, so I know f- from, a lot of your research, and, and you're probably the person we should ask f- about this first, because I think the economics of a financial company are so much different than a lot of other businesses and the way that they have these strict, like especially with the banks, right? They have these strict rules where they need this amount. They need to, f- to follow this formula in order to grow. So maybe you can touch on that and why how about you? Like, where where would you see price to books still being applicable? Um, well, I think it's definitely still applicable to uh, companies that are working in the financial realm, uh, i.e., banks or insurance companies, any sort of brokerages like a Schwab or somebody of that nature, Goldman Sachs, those kinds of companies, because of the nature of how their businesses work. Uh, they take in deposits which is actually money that they use to generate earnings for them. It's considered a liability, but it's really not. It's actually, 
I guess, raw material that they use to generate money. And they also have loans that they pay out, which are assets for them because it also makes the money. So they're different than Microsoft is. Microsoft is just, it's, it's a different beast. And you can see that very plainly and clearly when you look at a balance sheet of Wells Fargo versus Microsoft. And it's, it's certainly not apples to apples. And I think when I'm looking at comparing a bank or trying to value a bank like JP Morgan or Wells Fargo, Bank of America, whoever you want to name, uh, I am definitely going to look at the, at the book value of the company because that is far more relevant to the performance of the company based on how the business is still operating. And the same thing would apply with an insurance company, uh, because the majority of their value lies in the balance sheet and it's going to be kind of a comparison between the, the assets and the liabilities where when you're looking at Microsoft, their value is far more intangible than Wells Fargo's is. It just, it just is. And I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that. And I know that recently Warren Buffett garnered a lot of discussion, shall we say, in the financial world when he announced in his, uh, I don't know, was it the latest one or the previous one? One of the last two annual letters to the shareholders, he announced that he was no longer going to be using uh, price to book as a measure of value for Berkshire Hathaway. And prior to that, that had been all along had been one of his acknowledged out there in the world value methods for valuing his own company. And he, a lot of times he talked about that in reference to buying back shares of his own company, that he would only do it once he felt like the price to book reached a certain level compared to the, the share price of the company. And when he announced that, then all of a sudden everybody in the financial world started saying, you know, Buffett believes that book value is dead. Book value doesn't have any more value. It's, it's dead. It's, it's gone because of the tech industry. And what he was really saying was that his company has changed in the value of the business and how his business is set up that that's why he changed what the way he thinks because now a, a vast majority of his company is based on things that really are not as closely related to book value uh i.e. his investments those are really not a book value and those are something that is more of an intangible value because it's not real until he sells it and he doesn't he's not actually making any money until he sells any of those stocks and the other part of it too is the other underlying businesses in his business have moved away from some of the more i guess old-fashioned style of businesses, and he's moved towards more things like investing in Apple and buying other more capital light type of businesses, which means that the overall structure of Berkshire has changed. And so that's why he's moving away from book value. It's not that he thinks that book value is dead. And if he's buying, I guarantee you, if he's buying uh, Bank of America, like he just did recently, he's using book value to value the company. I guarantee you that. So uh, that's to me 
where I think book value has a, a relevance still. But if we're going to compare book values of Intel to AMD, nah, that's, that's, that's not a thing. <laughs> I don't think that's, I don't think that's a, a worthwhile endeavor at this point. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.
That's interesting. I didn't know he did that. Mm-hmm. He did. It makes a lot of sense, like you said, that the underlying business is in there, and the composition of Berkshire itself has definitely seen a transformation over the years. Mm-hmm. So, last point on this, because I know I especially have to say this because I've talked in the past about uh, James O'Shaughnessy's book, What Works on Wall Street. Really, really great book that presented a lot of simple valuation metrics. And so what he did in the book, if, if you haven't read it, is he took all these different factors. So he went to price to earnings, price to sales, price to book. Okay. Um, he looked at technicals like relative strength and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And he basically, he would he would line up these lists of stocks and then rank them. So, as an example, if we were to take the price to book, he took a this universe of stocks, ranked them, and sorted them for let's say the top fifty, top one hundred companies in price to book, put them into a portfolio, and then he would see how that would perform against the S and P five hundred. And so he showed, you know, it's a great book. I, I highly recommend reading it. But he showed how each factor performed. And obviously, these different factors would have down years. They would have up years um, where they would beat the S&P or they would lose to the S&P. But overall, he found that price to book actually was a pretty good indicator. If you bought on low price to book, um, you did pretty well against the S&P. And if you bought low price to sales, you also did pretty well against the S&P. And then he also found that if you combine low price to book and low price to sales, you did really, really good against the S&P 500. So that was something that I learned very, very early in my investing career. And it was something that I took to heart as I was evaluating a lot of companies. Something we need to circle back on about that and understand is that's a that's a type of strategy that can definitely work and it's it's a quantitative strategy but an important detail about why that worked and at least it, it made a big contributing factor to it was that he was taking this list of 50 or 100 i can't remember the exact number of these you know ranked price to book stocks and then he was rebalancing every single year so whatever that list looked like in one year the next year is going to be completely different. And then the next year is going to be completely different. And so if you're going to use a strategy like that, where you're going to rank and, and buy all the lowest price to book or all the lowest price to sales, you could probably do pretty well, but you got to remember to rebalance. And I think the probably the best example of that would be this year, 2020. We we had um, obviously the the huge crash from coronavirus. You had a lot of businesses like restaurants, airlines, every everybody associated with that who really saw their share prices crash, and then they got to ridiculously low price-to-earnings ratios. And so if you were able to scoop them up at those low price-to-earnings ratios, then since then, they've, they've rebounded a lot more than a lot of the other stocks that didn't take such a hit. We'll, we'll see what happens if you're to, to hold on to a stock like that for two, three, four, five years. But, you know, a lot of the gains that are made by kind of bottom, bottom fishing, you know, Warren Buffett calls it like cigarette 
cigarette butt investing where you you find these little cigar butts it's cigar butts not cigarette butts you find these little cigar butts that have like one puff left and you you pick it up off the ground and you puff that last puff and and that's basically you taking the the little value that's left from uh, a company that might struggle over the long term and so what you need to keep in mind is is when you buy the most beaten up stocks number 1 you're going to have to have huge diversification and number 2 a lot of those price pops will happen in the short term and then you might see those things start to go down again as the years go on so you have to really look at yourself and and think what kind of an investor do i want to be am i trying to be somebody who's going to buy a stock and hold it for 10 years if if I can, you know, and and that's the that's the goal, or am I trying to really find the cheapest things I can find because once the fear leaves, then the price is going to pop, but it might put me in a business. You know, you might have this collection of businesses that are really subpar because they are cheap, and you know, you bought them simply because they are cheap. So I think as you as you learn more and you grow as an investor, it's one of those things you really have to circle back on because price to earnings, price to sales, price to book, these are all fantastic ways to jump into the market, to start to make sense of the market. If you look at a, a annual report, it's hundreds of pages. You look at the financial statements, it's like 20, 30 lines. There's no way a beginner can go in there and start to comprehend any of it. But if you have a price to earnings ratio that tells you Look, we we just find this one line here and we can make a simple calculation. Same with the price to book. There's there's one line in the balance sheet to look for. Same with uh, price to sales and any of those simple price based metrics. Fantastic tools for learning. Fantastic tool for for finding really cheap bargains. But is it in line with with your investment philosophy and and how you're trying to? compound your money over the long term it's it's a question you really need to ask and and those are the important details to consider when you consider to what extent am i going to use price to book all right we've talked a lot about our thoughts on price to book and some of the different aspects and the effects that it's had on growth versus value and how businesses have evolved a little bit since uh, ben graham first kind of introduced the formula so I know you've had some thoughts on price to book and how it's how your thoughts have changed on that. So I guess tell me a little bit about how that's affected the VTI and the new update that you just put out. Yeah, thanks thanks for bringing that up. It's it's a perfect time to obviously. And like like we've we've talked about on the show for the past couple months, this has really been such a transition transitionary period with with the pandemic and a good opportunity to reevaluate your beliefs and, and really lock down, double down on the ones you believe in and evaluate the ones that may have weakened. And so, you know, again, when you see interest rates go so low, you see the Fed say that they're going to keep them low. You start to, you need to make some sort of adjustment to the fact that we're in a new reality. And if, if you don't believe we're not in a new reality, just step outside for a second and look at how everything has changed and everybody's in a mask. So as a part of that, and you know, combined with the fact that, you know, I'm constantly doing these updates on on the value trap indicator. A lot of times they were very minor. Um, but in in the in this particular case, 
you know, I've been brooding about the price to book thing for years now. And after a lot of research and a lot of personal experience and a lot more of understanding businesses and understanding accounting and everything that's involved with that. And then having these tools and um, computing tools and data sets that are available to me now that I didn't have available years ago, I was able to take a fresh approach and, and, and kind of take the value chart indicator with a clean slate and run some tests on it. So basically what I did is I did my own back tests and I wanted to do it in a way that it would be relevant for somebody who is a more long-term investor. So I talked about how a lot of a lot of other back tests they they mention filtering and building a portfolio or they mention you know um, rebalancing every year and I didn't really care too much about that. What I really cared about was maintaining the value trap indicator and also figuring out what really makes businesses do poorly. So I ran the value trap indicator through all these back tests where I was trying to tweak the price to book ratio. I was trying to tweak um, a lot of the different price ratios. I was trying to tweak signals for this and signals for that. And I, I wasn't, I was just kind of spinning my wheels and not really getting anywhere. And so it was when I finally went back to the basics and, and really broke it down. And I said, okay, forget about all this price to book stuff, which makes my head spin. Let's just go back to what would the value trap indicator be best applied for? And it would be to indicate value traps. And so I really broke it down and then started to break down um, what were the things that made companies do poorly, not, you know, not just this year, but next year and the year after. And so I ran back tests, I ran more back tests and, um, I finally found something that that works and that filters stocks that are more likely to do poorly um, in the next one, two, three, even five years out. And so what I did is I took a universe of 4,000 stocks. These are stocks that trade either on the NYSE or the NASDAQ. And all, I ran the VTI through them. And then I compare, I simply compared them to the universe of stocks. So I wasn't trying to build a portfolio. I was just trying to see, you know, what's the difference in return for these stocks uh, that were the VTI versus every stock. And so I compared the the stocks that would trigger a value trap indicator strong sell with all of the you know all the stocks in the universe, these four thousand stocks. And I found at least for one year, two year, three year, and even five year periods. Uh, the VTI strong sell stocks did worse than the universe of stocks. So bottom line, I, I updated the formula and it made it, it's been the biggest overhaul ever since I've created this thing years ago. And obviously it's a, it's a free update for everybody who's already purchased a spreadsheet. But the biggest difference is that Partly because of the price to book thing, partly because of the business world changing, partly because of the economics changing, I just don't feel comfortable suggesting that a formula can tell you whether a stock is a strong buy or not. And so I've changed it to be simply an indicator only for value traps. Either a stock 
either it will tell you that you should not buy this stock or it's a strong sell or it's just not going to tell you anything else about the stock. And so I compared this new, it's version seven. I compared it to version six, which had, you know, the strong buy, which was based on the combination of price to book and price to sales. And the version six did a lot worse than the version seven. And even the version six, a lot of times would pick stocks that did better than all, all of the stocks. So what I mean is it would flag a strong sell for version six and actually have a lot of stocks that would outperform the rest of the stocks. So, you know, that's not something that you want to see. And I think a lot of that has to do with this deterioration of price to book. I looked at the time periods from 2003 to 2018. That was my extensive data sheet that was available for me. And so, you know, there is always the chance that, you know, the value versus growth stocks thing has has a lot to do with the results. There's always there's a million reasons why why this why why this result could have come out but the bottom line is is i've changed it to be this way i'm continuing to use it moving forward on stocks i'm looking at so i i intentionally left it open ended where you can see all of the data that that i spit out in these tables that come with the the update the update document and so you can choose whether how, to what extent you want to apply it. You know, are you going to apply it for stocks and feels a strong sell? You're not going to buy that stock for one year or two years or three years or five years. However, you want to do it. I've left that open on purpose, and and I'm going to be applying that for myself too, and and not trying to use it as okay. This is. This is this definitive formula and it's going to give me a perfect result every time. Rather, you know, I'm going to take every stock on a case by case basis and, and really try to use the value trap indicator as a tool, but not as my decision making. And, uh, you know, you, we talked, I can't remember if it was last week or two weeks ago about the hills we're willing to die on and the hill I'm not willing to die on is price to book, particularly because of all of the evidence I've seen leading up to today. And so I think this move to update the VTI is just a natural, it's a natural component of it too. Yeah, I like that. And I think it's a, I think it's a natural evolution of all the things that we've learned uh, over the years as we've been doing this. And as you've been learning more and growing and learning more about business and accounting and all the things that you discussed. And it sounds to me like it, it more is moving towards a tool that you could use to help you prevent losing money. Because I think that is, isn't that rule number one is uh, don't lose money. Rule number two is don't forget rule number one. And that's to me, I think that's kind of what I felt like the value trap indicator was meant to be was a way for you to avoid companies that are going to go into bankruptcy. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's the new update still maintains that. And it's just, it, you know, it's just more of a focus on that. And it turns out, the bottom line of the formula is it's just checking to see if a business has deteriorated and it turns out when that when it when it starts to deteriorate the the price generally doesn't do as well in the years to follow and so it i 
I like I like the results of this back test out of all the other ones I tried because it's it's a lot simpler and it's like you said it's it's trying to prevent losing money and it's not a guarantee you know we're playing probabilities here and all the numbers that go along with that but it it makes sense and and it really simplifies it and and I think it takes out the possible hiccups that price to book or price to sales or even price earnings can bring and it's almost like you're trying to juggle too many things at a time you don't want to add too many spices into the mix those should really be separate ideas separate tools separate discussions all right folks well that is going to wrap up our discussion for this evening i hope you enjoyed our conversation on price to book and andrew's thoughts on price to book and also his update on the vti i wanted to thank john for taking the time to write us that fantastic question and we hope we answered your question to your satisfaction so without any further ado i'm going to go ahead and sign us off you guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety emphasis on the safety have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week we hope you enjoyed this content Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.